Mark chapter 12. Then he, this is Yeshua, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. They beat some, and they killed some. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from Yahweh and is wonderful in our eyes. Because they knew he had said this parable against them, they were looking for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. May Yahweh bless His Word to our hearts. Who is the they in verse 12? Well, back in Mark 11, verse 27, it says, As He was walking in the temple complex, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked Him. And if you follow Mark eleven twenty-seven through Mark 12, the they is the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. It was the religious leaders of Israel that he was talking to. It was them he spoke this parable to because the thought continues from there to here. They are the they and the them. The landowner who planted the vineyard and set the hedge and dug the wine press and built the watchtower, that represents Yahweh the Father. He's the owner of the vineyard. The tenant farmers that he lent the vineyard out to represent the leaders or the teachers among the people of Israel. The leaders in Israel were to work the vineyard. The vineyard are the people of Israel. The leaders were to work the vineyard and produce fruit from the vineyard. The servants that the landowner sent to the farmers to collect the fruit, they represent Yahweh's prophets. Each time the landowner would send one of his servants, the farmers would beat, wound, or kill him. If you know your Older Testament Bible, you know that when the prophets were sent, they were often ridiculed and despised and made fun of and sometimes beaten and sometimes killed. Well, after this, we read that the landowner had one beloved son. And the landowner finally decided to send his son to the tenant farmers. The landowner said, they'll respect my son. They may not have respected my servants, my slaves, but they'll respect my son. But what happened? The farmers killed the son and threw him out of the vineyard like trash. This beloved only son represents Yeshua. Brothers and sisters, this shows the Father's heart. When it comes to the crucifixion of Yeshua, that's why I bring this up and I open up this lesson today with Mark 12. I bring it up to show you the Father's attitude about the death of Yeshua. 
His attitude was not one of approval. He did not say, Now that my wrath has come down on my son as a penalty in your place, justice is settled and I am appeased. That's not what Yahweh said. His attitude here is one of disgust. He will destroy the farmers, Yeshua says. Yeshua's death was a sacrifice, but it was not one in which Yahweh was killing His own son. It was the unrepentant Israelite leaders who rejected and killed the son of Yahweh. The Father knew it had to happen this way. It was ordained. There is plenty of scriptures for that. He knew it had to happen this way, but it made Him sad and it made Him angry. But at the same time, He was well pleased in His Son's bravery for being willing to lay down His life for the sheep. Think of a parent whose son sacrifices his life to an armed robber in order to save the life of his friend. The parent is sad, but another person is saved, so they're grateful. And that other person that is saved, they come to thank the parent for raising such a brave son. So the parent, although sad and angry at the armed robber, feels some type of comfort and dignity in knowing my child was a hero. In the book of Acts, I put this slide in my charts this week and I thought Brother TJ is going to think he's taking my book. <laughs> in the book of Acts, we have some sermons by one of Yeshua's closest apostles, Apostle Peter. I call these sermons in Acts salvation sermons. The reason I call them that is because Peter is pleading with people to receive Yeshua as the Savior that Yahweh sent. Yahweh sent many saviors in the Older Testament, culminating in this one beloved son, the ultimate Savior. You'll find these sermons by the Apostle Peter in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 5, and Acts 10. Acts 2, 3, and 5, he's preaching to men of Israel. In Acts 10, he's preaching to uh, the centurion Italian Cornelius and his family, who was not considered a man of Israel, but was considered an uncircumcised member of the nations. Not a single one of these sermons, I want to challenge you to go back and read these sermons that Peter preaches. Not a single one of these sermons say that Yeshua's death was done by Yahweh as some type of justice being settled or an appeasement of wrath as is taught in one atonement model, penal substitutionary atonement. Let me give you just a glimpse of this. In Acts 2.23, Peter says, Though he, speaking of Yeshua, was delivered up according to the Almighty's determined plan and foreknowledge, you, the you there is the men of Israel from Acts 2.22, used lawless people to nail Him to a cross and kill Him. So the men of Israel were the ones that cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Elijah read it. We read the Gospel of Matthew towards the end. Crucify Him. We want Him dead. Do you want us to release the prisoner Yeshua? Or do you want us to release the prisoner Bar Abba? Do you want us to release the son of the father? Or do you want us to release the son of a father? Bar Abba is what that means, son of a father. Nobody knew who his father was. Actually, there's manuscripts that show that Bar Abba's name was Yeshua, just like the Messiah. And therefore, that's the differentiation there in the text. But I think that Peter has in mind here, when he says you use lawless people, I think he has in mind the Roman authorities that nailed Yeshua to the cross. But it was the Israelite, the men of Israel, that were hollering out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! In Acts chapter 3, 
Peter again addresses the men of Israel, saying, beginning at verse 13, The mighty one of our fathers has glorified his servant, that's the Ebed, Isaiah 53. He's glorified his servant Yeshua, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate. He's preaching again to the men of Israel. When he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one, that's Yeshua, and asked to have a murderer, Bar Abba, given to you. And you killed the source of life, whom the Almighty raised from the dead. Again, Peter speaks of Yeshua's death as an unjust act committed by rebellious Israelite leaders. Peter says again in Acts chapter 5, while standing before the Sanhedrin, in verse 30, The mighty one of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. And then in Acts 10, he preaches to the Gentile Cornelius and family in verses 38 through 40, how the Almighty anointed Yeshua of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and curing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because the Almighty was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. The Almighty raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen. These are the salvation sermons preached by one of the head of the apostles, Apostle Peter, or as he probably was called, Shimon or Shimon Kepha back then. Peter walked with Yeshua. He learned directly from the Master, both before his death and after his resurrection. He learned from the Master. Peter was the one that was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 16. After he gave the revelation, Thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living Elohim. And Yeshua said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. Thou art Peter, and on this rock, meaning the revelation that Peter just spoke, but there's a play because Peter's name means a rock as well. So there's a play there. And then he says, Thou art Peter, and I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Meaning he has the authority to bind and loose. He has the authority to pronounce a person under the judgment of Yahweh or loose them by the mercy of Yahweh. So Peter was an elder. He had special authority. Peter was one of two men mentioned specifically at the Jerusalem council who stood up at the end of the council, Acts 15, to give the end result. Now we know the bishop, the overseer there was Yaakov, James. He made the final decision, but right before him, Peter stood up and he said, We all know, brethren, that Elohim made choice among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should first hear the word of the gospel and believe. Talking about the preaching to Cornelius in Acts 10. So Peter was a top guy with Yeshua. He knew Yeshua. He rubbed elbows with him. If Yeshua died by the wrath of Yahweh coming down on him as a penalty in our place, why doesn't Peter ever say that in his sermons? Why does Peter never bring it up in his sermons? He always attributes the death of Yeshua to the rebellious Israelite leaders through the hands of the Romans. When Yahweh is mentioned in Peter's sermons, Peter does mention Yahweh, but when he mentions Yahweh, he mentions Yahweh as the one who raised up Yeshua from the dead. That's when Yahweh is mentioned. Hallelujah. And Yahweh resurrected Yeshua because he knew that the grave had no right to hold Yeshua due to his sinlessness. Yahweh is the one who resurrects Yeshua in the salvation sermons in the book of Acts. Yahweh is not the one who puts him to death. Wicked men are the ones who put him to death. Being tools of the devil, they put the master to death.
As I mentioned last week, the early Christian model of the atonement was ransom plus Christus victor, meaning that Yeshua gave his life as a ransom price to the enemy, the adversary, the devil, to the wicked, so that the rest of humanity will be let from the adversary's grip. And he destroyed with his death and resurrection the power of the one who held the keys to death at that time, the devil, Hebrews 2.15. Now, as with any position that you take on any subject in the Bible, there will always be somebody who takes a different position. Isn't that wonderful? As iron sharpeneth iron, so one man sharpens another, Proverbs says. I'm glad that we don't all agree on everything because that way we learn and we grow and we discuss and we midrash and we butt head sometimes and we come to greater levels of understanding and sometimes greater levels of obedience. It's a beautiful thing. It's good to have your view challenged by another because when your view is challenged, it leads to one of two things. Either you have more fine-tuning on what you already believe or you change your mind and you quit believing one thing and you start believing something else. I've had to change my mind on many things over the years as I've gotten around slowly to studying certain subjects in Scripture. Anybody else change their mind on anything? We've got a lot of people with a lot of backgrounds in here, a lot of religious backgrounds. So we've had to change our mind on a number of things. I changed, for example, I changed from calling the Creator God, which is just a generic word that can refer to many different things, to calling Him Yahweh, the name that He gave Himself. And that He says, this is my memorial. This is how I want you to remember me. Another example, is I changed from Saturday Sabbath to keeping the Sabbath by the heavenly lights, what sometimes is called the lunar Sabbath. I changed from believing in eternal conscious torment for the unbeliever to annihilationism. I've taught sermons on all these things. I changed from being oneness in my theology on the Godhead to Trinitarian. Now, a lot of people know that. But there was one point where I changed to Trinitarian because I didn't know that there was even anything else to believe. I just thought it was either oneness or Trinitarian. And oneness was making less and less sense to me, so I switched to being Trinitarian. And then after a couple of years, I found out that there was other positions. And then I changed to Unitarian, not Unitarian Universalist. Hopefully everybody knows I'm not one of them. <laughs> but a biblical Unitarian, a Unitarian that believes the Bible is the inspired word of the Almighty. Some people chastise those who change on things. Why do you change on something, Matthew? Have you ever been chastised for changing on something? Some people do. But I think that someone who never changes is not studying. There's no way you can study the Bible and stay the exact same way in belief 30 years later. If you are the exact same way in belief 30 years later, you have not studied the Bible. Because what you're saying is, I've got already everything ironed out. I know everything. I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. <laughs> That's ridiculous. There's none of us that have that. There are some things that I have studied that I have not changed on. But goodness gracious, are we so prideful to think that we're right on everything and that we should never change on anything? Pride is arguably the greatest of all sins because it leads to so many other sins. It's the sin that got the devil in trouble. It's the sin that got Nebuchadnezzar turned into an animal for seven years. Are we so prideful to think that we already know everything? 
I've known preachers. I've talked to preachers. I talk to a lot of people. I witness to a lot of people. And most people I'm very gracious and merciful with. Sometimes I've gotten in trouble because people say I'm too gracious and too merciful with folks. And newsflash, they've never heard me speak to a preacher that's been preaching for 30 years. Because when I run across a preacher who's been preaching for 30 years, I do not hold back. I'm not nearly as gracious or merciful. And sometimes I'm not gracious or merciful at all because they have set themselves up in a leadership position saying that they are apt and equipped to be a shepherd of a group of people, a shepherd of a flock, and they don't know anything about the Bible. There's preachers that I know that have preached for 30 plus years that I would put the least person in here that understands the Scriptures up against. They just spout and spout what somebody else has told them or what a seminary just pushed into them over and over and over and not because they've studied the Bible. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers knowing that you will incur stricter judgment. You shouldn't be calling yourself a pastor or a preacher if you don't know the Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, to believe the exact same way after 30 years of preaching is not a badge of honor. It's a badge of laziness and pride. You don't have to do anything to stay the same. But it takes work and humility to change. Well, this is one of those doctrines that I've changed on. It hasn't been a quick change. It's taken me off and on studies for about three years. I don't expect everybody in here to believe what I'm saying. I don't get up here to try to preach or tell you what to believe. That's not my goal. My goal is to study the Bible, teach what I see in a proper manner, in a gentle manner, and give people the opportunity to look at it, research it, and make your own decision on what you want to believe. But I've changed on this subject, I think, for the better. But there's always objections. (laughs) Always objections. One of the key texts that is presented by those that are in favor of penal substitutionary atonement. The word penal means that Yeshua took the penalty for our sins from Yahweh. Yahweh put His wrath down on Yeshua. I talked about this in previous sermons in this series. From now on, I'll just say PSA instead of penal substitutionary atonement. One of the key texts presented by those in favor of PSA is Isaiah chapter 53. Now, I love Isaiah 53, 52, 13 through 53, 12 to be exact. And I do believe it is the first gospel, as Brother TJ taught us recently. Isaiah 53 and 5 teaches us that Yeshua was, New Living Translation, pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. That is a true verse. It's just that many of us have been trained to think that the verse is speaking about Yahweh doing that to him. And sometimes when our minds have been trained to read something one way, we cannot see anything else until somebody turns the light on for us. Have you ever read a scripture one way and then all of a sudden you're in a Bible study or a casual conversation and somebody brings up that scripture in a way that you had not understood previously and all of a sudden, boom, you see it and now you can't read it without thinking about the way that they explained it. And you said, how did I not see that? Man, it's happened to me so many times in talking with many of you. So verse 5 in Isaiah 53 does teach that we are given healing 
And brothers and sisters, it's not physical healing. I know that's popular in the charismatic movement. By His stripes we are healed. My granddaddy, may he rest in peace, quoted that verse about physical healing. And he was a, he was a good man, but he, was not, he did not have a correct understanding of that verse. It's talking about spiritual healing from sins in that verse. So, we are spiritually healed from our sins by Yeshua's stripes. And it was our sins corporately that He went through what He went through. But that can just as easily be understood in the ransom model of the atonement that I taught last week. It's just a lot of people don't know this. A lot of people have no clue, including myself, that the early Christian model of the atonement was different than what came about through the medieval period in Roman Catholicism and then popularized by Calvin and Luther in the Protestant Reformation. It was not taught. What they taught was not taught by the pre-Nicene Christian people as a whole. PSA is not necessary to believe this verse. Remember, in the ransom model, Yeshua is still a sacrifice, just not a ritual sacrifice to Yahweh, but a sacrifice that takes our place at the hands of the adversary. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says at the end, King James Version, But the Lord, Yahweh, hath laid on Him, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. And here we are again. We're reading that in the way that we've been trained to read it. But does it have to mean that Yahweh was striking him down? Well, not according to every Bible translation from the Hebrew text. For instance, the Lexham English Bible translates this verse from the Hebrew as, Yahweh let fall on him the iniquity of us all. Again, that can be understood fine with the ransom model of the atonement. And, here's a secondary way to see that, possibly. This could also be referring to the actual sins that were committed against Yeshua's body in the last 24 hours of His life. Now, you may have to meditate on that, but think about all of the sins that were committed against Yeshua's body in the last day of His mortal life. Could be referring to that as well. Could be a double meaning there. What's really interesting here is in the Septuagint, in Isaiah 53 verse 6, there is a Variant reading. Remember this. The Septuagint text is translated from an older Hebrew text than our common Hebrew Masoretic text that most of our Bibles, their Older Testament, are translated from. We know this by comparing these texts with the Dead Sea Scroll findings. Prior to the Dead Sea Scroll findings, it was thought by a lot of scholars that the Septuagint translators took too much liberty with the Hebrew text. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, written in Hebrew, a lot of Paleo-Hebrew, they found that a lot of the readings from the Older Testament in Isaiah and Jeremiah and other books lined up exactly with the readings in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, by the way, is the oldest complete Old Testament in existence today. It's the Greek Old Testament. began to be translated around 250 B.C. by about 70 or 72 Jewish men who spoke both Hebrew and Greek and were based or lived in the land of Egypt where there was a large population of Israelite people that spoke Greek. Philo was a Jew that lived in Egypt, a Levite that spoke Greek. Philo read the Septuagint. Well, the Septuagint mirrors the Masoretic text in this chapter, Isaiah 53, in many places, but there's at least two distinct differences 
One here in verse 6 and then another in verse 10. I'll get to that in a moment. Isaiah 53 verse 6 from the Orthodox Study Bible taken from the Septuagint says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Man has gone astray in his way. And the Lord, Yahweh, delivered him over for our sins. That's different than punished him for our sins or laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord delivered him over. So it wasn't Yahweh punishing Yeshua in our place. It was Yahweh delivering him over. Remember the parable of the vineyard? Last, Yahweh said, I've got one beloved son. I'll send him. Surely they'll respect my son. I'll give him. I'll deliver him. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yahweh produced the second Adam, similar to how he produced the first Adam. He let the second Adam grow up, and then he gave him up. He released him, or he delivered him over. And the son also was willing to lay down his life for his friends. It wasn't that he required something of the son and the son didn't want to do it and the son was kicking and screaming and saying, no, I don't want to do this. No, the son willingly laid his life down. He even says in John 10, I've opened up with it for a couple of sermons, no man takes my life from me. Meaning that even though men did take his life from him, he could have stopped it at any point. There's one gospel that says he could have called down legions of angels to stop the crucifixion, but he did not do it. You know why? Because he loved the sheep more than he loved his own life. And Yeshua, Hebrews 12 says, because of the joy that was set before him, endured the pain and suffered the cross because he knew what he had to look forward to on the other side. And the author of Hebrews is telling early Christians saying, look, when you're persecuted, be like the Messiah because you've got something enduring on the other side. Hallelujah. So Yeshua was brave and courageous. He committed to the mission of the Father to save mankind from the grasp of the enemy. What about Isaiah 53 verse 10? The first part of that verse in the HCSB says, Yet the Lord, Yahweh, Lord in all capital letters, was pleased to crush him, which can be read to sound like Yahweh took pleasure in killing his own son because he suffered the penalty from Yahweh in our place. That's how it's taught in specifically Reformed theology. Yeshua took all of our sins on himself, and therefore Yahweh could not even look at Yeshua, and he had to crush him on the cross as a penalty in our place. Now, I can give you from the HCSB reading or the KJV reading, which it says, yet the Lord was pleased to bruise him. I can give you an understanding from that reading, but I don't think it's the correct reading. Brother Matthew does not think this is the correct reading. I think, again, that the Septuagint text gives us the better, older reading from an older Hebrew text. And it says here in the Septuagint, OSB, based on the LXX, the Lord wishes to cleanse him of his wound. The New English translation of the Septuagint says the Lord desires to cleanse him from his blow. That's a huge difference from the Masoretic. So one text, the Masoretic says the Lord was pleased to crush him or to bruise him. The Septuagint says the Lord was pleased to cleanse him from his blow or from his wound. That's a big difference. Instead of Yahweh being pleased to crush Yeshua, Yahweh was pleased to cleanse him of his torture, and that refers to raising him from the dead with a perfect immortal body. That's how he was cleansed. Why is there a difference in these texts? If you've studied any in textual criticism, you know that it's just a fact 
King James only people don't want us to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it. But it's just a fact that all texts are not the same. Now, you'll still get the same overall message no matter which major translation of the Bible that you read. You'll get the same message. I believe you can get the law and the gospel from a multiplicity of good Bible translations. But there are certain texts where you have to look at the manuscripts to determine the proper reading. And people don't like to talk about this, but like there's a short ending of Mark and a long ending of Mark. Brother Matthew believes the shorter ending is probably the more correct ending. That Mark's gospel stops at Mark 16, 8. And the part about taking up the serpents and drinking the poison, that wasn't in the original Gospel of Mark. I know a lot of people, you know, they're amazed by that. And we can't just make up things. You ever been talking to somebody and they don't like what a verse says? And they say, well, that's just the line pen of the scribes. (laughs) Anybody ever had that happen? I've had it happen to me a lot of times. Listen, you can't make up stuff if you don't like what it says. You can't just make up stuff when you don't have manuscript readings that back what you want want it to say. I always tell them Jeremiah 8.8 when they say, well, it's just the lying pen of the scribes. I say, well, how do you know Jeremiah 8.8 ain't the lying pen of the scribes? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. So there is textual criticism that needs to be done on some texts. It's only probably about 1% or less where textual variants are meaningful and viable. About 99% of the biblical text reads pretty much the same way depending on whatever manuscript you read. But there is that 1% and some of them make a difference. I preached on one not long ago and I mentioned this in a follow-up sermon about the woman caught in the very act of adultery. Now, I love that text. I can explain it and if I'm honest with you, I wished that it was for sure original. But the evidence points to that it's not original that it did not belong in the Gospel of John. Some manuscripts have it in the Gospel of Luke. It's what scholars call a floating pericope. It floats through manuscripts. And then it doesn't even appear in our Greek New Testament until about the 5th century A.D. So it probably wasn't original. You know what? That's okay. And you need to know things because there's people that go to college that are listening to professors that bring this up. And because children were raised in these fundamental conservative Christian families where they taught them that every single word in the King James Version Bible is inspired of God, bless glory to God, that you can't question any of it. You need to know these things. A lot of people lose their faith. A lot of children, teenagers lose their faith when they go off to college because they hear things that they've never heard from the pulpit. Brother Matthew's not like that. I've I've taught these things for a long time, even when my children were little. So what's the difference here? Now, I'm going to give you a theory that I have. Now, let me preface it with this. It's not a theory that there's a difference in readings. The Masoretic text and the Septuagint read differently here. That's not a theory. That's a fact. I'm going to give you a theory that may have caused this. It may hinge on one Hebrew letter. One Hebrew letter. It looks a lot different in English, but it may hinge on one letter. The Hebrew word for crush in crush him is the word dakah. It begins with the letter in Hebrew, Dalit. There is another Hebrew word for cleanse or to make pure used in Isaiah 1, and that is the word zakah. Dakah, zakah. They sound similar. They look similar. 
If you'll notice that the Dalit in Dakar and the Zayin in Zakah, you can differentiate them, but they still look similar. And sometimes when one scribe is copying the manuscript of another scribe, their eye, for non-diabolical reasons, just because people are human, may mistake one letter for another. Scribes were very careful not to do this, but even the most careful scribe still is human, and to err is human. So it's possible that a Hebrew copyist mistook the Zion for the Dalit, and they wrote Dakah instead of Zakah, which results in bruise instead of cleanse, and thus we have what I think is the bad Masoretic text reading. That is a theory. It's a possibility. I present that for your studies today. That Yahweh was pleased to cleanse the suffering servant of his wound makes so much more sense based on the totality of Scripture. Especially if you read Isaiah 53, verses 9b through 10 in the Lexham English Septuagint, which says this, Because he committed no lawlessness and there was no deceit in his mouth, the Lord is willing to cleanse him of the injury. Now remember... Verses are meant to be read back to back to back to back, right? When TJ taught on this, it's one big thought from Isaiah 52 verse 13 to Isaiah 53 verse 12. And in order to understand any one of those verses, you've got to understand the big chunk of Scripture there. So I think this is beautiful right here. Once again, centering in on the sinlessness of Yeshua. Because He was sinless, the grave had no power over Him. Yahweh knew, I cannot keep Him there. I'm going to resurrect Him on the third day. I might start preaching. Let me make a note of this as well. Isaiah 53 verses 7 through 8 about the sheep to the slaughter is quoted directly by an apostle in Acts chapter 8. Brother Philip was teaching the Ethiopian eunuch about the suffering servant. And he cited Isaiah 53. And guess what text he cited? The Septuagint. He cited the Septuagint, or at least an older Hebrew that aligned with the Septuagint from which it was translated. Catch what I'm saying? I bring that up to say that if Philip is teaching the eunuch from the Septuagint text of Isaiah 53, then I think it's probably best to go with the Septuagint rendering in Isaiah 53.6. Yahweh delivered him over for our sins. In Isaiah 53.10, Yahweh was pleased to cleanse him of his wound. When you look at all the texts in Scripture that are used to promote PSA, Isaiah 53, 6 and 10 from the Masoretic text are really the strongest ones. Everything else, if you read it, if you take your PSA glasses off, put on your ransom Christus Victor glasses, you could say, I see it. It's not hard at all. It's not hard at all. I'd like to cover one more popular text today as I close. Matthew 27, 45 through 46, HCSB. It says, from noon until three in the afternoon, literally from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. At about three in the afternoon, Yeshua cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, my Elohim, my Elohim. Why have you forsaken me? This text has often been used by proponents of PSA to teach that the Father forsook Yeshua on the cross, the Father forsook the Son on the cross because He had to turn His face away from Him while He crushed Him because He took the penalty for our sin. All the sins of humanity were placed upon the back of Yeshua. 
Yahweh punished him in our place as a penalty. The wrath of Yahweh came upon Yeshua. Thus it was an appeasement to the Father's wrath. I'll give you one example of this from R.C. Sproul now. Let me say this about R.C. Sproul. May he rest in peace. He died back in 2017. He was a very wise elder. I listened to R.C. a lot in the 2000s. I would encourage anybody, if you want to just learn general Bible knowledge, he's got a series of like 50 or so teachings called From Dust to Glory where he goes through the entire Bible and teaches on every major theme in the Bible. And I'm not wanting to speak ill of the dead. May he rest in peace and he's in the hands of a merciful Creator. But he was heavily reformed in his all of his theology and in a teaching that he did called Treasuring Redemption's Price, he says this, quote, God the Father turned His back on the Son, cursing Him to the pit of hell while He hung on the cross. Here was the Son's descent into hell. Here the fury of God raged against Him. His scream was the scream of the damned for us. End of quote. That is a telling of what a lot of pastors and theologians that had been taught the PSA model believe that is what I used to believe because that's what I was taught and that's the only thing that I thought it could be saying until I studied deeper and further and somebody opened my eyes or turned the light on in the room for Brother Matthew. Now, first off, Matthew 27, 45-46. I do believe this is a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22, 1 is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm of King David. If you know your Bible, you know that a lot of times when David speaks, he's speaking about some, somebody that would come from his progeny, a descendant. Peter talks about this in Acts 2. Brother TJ will be getting into this where David sounds like he's talking about himself, but he's speaking about one of his descendants, meaning Yeshua of Nazareth. So he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. There are several texts in the New Testament that link Yeshua up with Psalm 22. One case is Hebrews 2, 10 through 12. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. That's a direct quotation in Hebrews 2, 10 through 12 about Yeshua, quoted from Psalm 22, verse 22. I believe that Yeshua was citing Psalm 22 on the cross to show I'm the promised Davidic Messiah. I'm the one the Psalm of David is about. Later, if this is the case, and I believe it is, later in Psalm 22, verse 24... One thing, excuse me, that Psalm 22 was about was that Yahweh did not forsake this person because it says he did not hide his face from him but listened when he cried to him for help. The Father did not forsake Yeshua. He raised him from the dead on the third day. That's how we know he wasn't forsaken on the cross. But I want you to ask yourself this. Why did Yeshua say this while on the cross? It's not hard. I had somebody that was an anti-Messiah and they had rejected everything in the Bible except the first five books of Moshe, Genesis to Deuteronomy. They rejected everything else and they said Yeshua can't be the Messiah in a very mocking way because God forsook Him on the cross. He said so Himself. Why have you forsaken Me? Why did He say this? Someone who has even lived their whole life for Yahweh and seen miracles and experienced mountaintops and have known things and have understood deep things of Yahweh they can feel forsaken by Yahweh when they go through a trial. But just because you feel forsaken doesn't mean Yahweh's not there. And Yeshua 
was a man of suffering, acquainted with grief. He was like us. And he felt that Yahweh had left him because that's what he was doing, hanging there out of his love. And he cries out, my, my Elohim, my Elohim, why have you forsaken me? Think about it. How would you feel if you had to go through all that? So let's don't get upset with Yeshua for feeling forsaken. He went through something tougher than any of us have ever went through. Imagine having your beard plucked out. My grandbabies will pull my beard and not even pluck it out. and It'll get out there and it hurts. Imagine having it plucked out and stripped nude and beaten with 40 lashes with a flagellum, which was a strip with bone and glass and all kind of stuff in it. And when he would get hit on the back and it would pull, it would pull the skin off of his back and he was beaten bloody. Isaiah says he was marred more than any man. And you could not even sometimes look and see and think, is that a human? And then a crown of thorns. I've been cutting my grass before and the thorns on the Bradford pear tree sliced my arm open and it hurts. Imagine a thorn, crown of thorns pushed into your skull and blood's running down. And then they spit on you. They mock you. Hell, King of the Jews. And then they hold your hands out and they thrust big old stakes through you. I think you'd feel forsaken too by Yahweh if you went through that. So let's not get upset with Yeshua. You say, wasn't he willing to do it? Yes, but he was still a man. It hurt. What he went through was tougher than anything else that we've been through. And in less trials that we've been through, sometimes we feel forsaken of Yahweh. But that doesn't mean Yahweh forsakes us. It doesn't mean Yahweh forsakes us. If you are Yahweh's child and you serve Him with your whole life, you will still go through hard times. Little Rosalind was citing Job 29 in our memory verse class earlier today. and Job was looking back on his glory days, it says in the HCSB. He says, I remember the days when all my children were with me. I remember the days when everything was good. And I had all my land and all my animals, all ten of my kids, but now they're gone. Guarantee you, Job wondered what in the world is going on. In the beginning of that book, it says that Job was a perfect and upright man, one that feared Yahweh and turned away from evil. But he still went through a trial. You're going to go through hard times in life. If you haven't been, you'll eventually will. Because you're a human being, None of us are exempt from a corruptible body. We all will die. We all will have to put off this flesh. But it doesn't mean Yahweh doesn't love you. Don't ever forget that, brothers and sisters. Don't ever forget that. doesn't mean Yahweh doesn't love you. Going through a valley is just part of life. And in our toughest times, Yahweh teaches us the greatest lessons. Hebrews 5, 7-8 says this, During His, Yeshua's earthly life, He offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. (laughs) Though a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I could go over more scriptures and answer more objections, but I'm not going to. I'm going to close this series of lessons out today. 
I pray it's been a blessing to you. I'm always open for questions on other texts. We can talk about them as time progresses. I hope you understand more about what Yeshua actually did for us on His death. Not that you just believe it. Not that you just say Christ died for my sins. But now maybe you can explain it if somebody asks you about the hope that lies within you. Like 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be ready to do it. Hopefully you can say, well, I don't just believe He died for my sins. Let me explain it to you. You can take some of these things that we've been through in these sermons. I pray that this will open the eyes of people's understanding. And I pray that you would take these teachings and you'd study them as a good Berean and you'd develop them further and you'd come up with revelation after revelation and understanding based upon Holy Scripture, finding more and more insight into our atonement through the Messiah. I finally close with this right here. Brothers and sisters, had Yahweh not provided a deliverer, a sinless deliverer, and had that deliverer not been willing to lay down his life for us, the sheep, we would all die and never live again. You would die and have no promise of ever living again had Yahweh not provided the deliverer. We were all held in the power of death with no promise of resurrection. But Yahweh provided a deliverer. He overcame, never sinned, And then He went to the cross. Yahweh resurrected Him because He had to. And therefore, all of those who believe in Him are attached to Him by faith and faithfulness. And because we're attached to Him, we inherit what He inherits. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. All the law-keeping you could ever do wouldn't resurrect you from the dead. No. Yahweh had to send a deliverer. Yeshua of Nazareth. That's the promise that we have of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that.